Good afternoon, everyone. The Bible tells us that the scriptures are true. Jesus referred to the scriptures as the word of God and said the scripture cannot be broken. John 10, verse 35. The scripture cannot be broken. In Matthew 5, verse 18, he said, For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Peter wrote in 2 Peter 1, beginning with verse 20, no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation for prophecy never came by the will of man but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. In Job 28, verse 28, we find these words, Behold the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. But more and more in the modern age, we have seen open defiance of and utter contempt for what the Bible says is God's word. And God's word according to scripture is the source of wisdom proverbs 2 and verse 6 it says for the lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding and the word of god as we've seen is what is in scripture or the bible there's a difference between what the world considers wisdom and god's wisdom Today, I want to discuss that difference and give you some guidelines to follow in seeking after knowledge and understanding and choosing between God's wisdom and the world's wisdom. The way of life revealed in the Bible has been under attack and rejected by most of humanity for as long as human beings have existed. In the so-called Christian world, centered in Europe for most of the period from the time of Christ to the modern period, the Bible's teachings were largely ignored and perverted in various ways as men pursued their own interests and followed their own ideas of right and wrong, although commonly claiming to be Christian. Lip service was, was widely given to scripture, especially after the Reformation in the 16th century, and a form of what was called Christianity dominated Europe and some other parts of the world. But emerging about the same time as the Reformation was what is called religious rationalism. Not all the early intellectuals who are identified as religious rationalists by historians were necessarily hostile to the Bible, but as rationalism as it's called, it developed, and rationalism actually has a very long history, but I'm talking more about mo the modern rationalism that began in the, second, in the 16th century. As rationalism developed, rational philosophers expressed an increased disdain for the teachings and authority of scripture. For example, David Friedrich Strauss, a German rationalist, published Das Leben Jesu, or The Life of Jesus Critically Examined, in 1835. 
where he proposed that the gospel accounts of Jesus' life were nothing more than myths developed by people ignorant of history and science. Attacks on the Bible from so-called liberal theologians became a dominant feature of Christianity, especially following the publication in 1859 of On the Origin of Species by Charles Darwin. That book, more than any other, popularized the idea that humans and other creatures developed gradually through an evolutionary process and were not created as the Bible says. The theologians were joined in their ridicule of scripture by many other influential people, including scientists, educators, and so on. In many books and scholarly journals, the Bible has been held up to scorn and ridicule. One example of that concerns the attitude of scholars toward Genesis 14. Genesis 14 recounts an attack by an alliance of Middle Eastern kings against the cities of the plain where Sodom and Gomorrah were and subsequent events. Quoting from an article entitled Ebla, Ugarit, and the Old Testament, published in 1979 in, in an archaeological journal, we find an example of the attitude of the majority of the world's scholars toward the Bible. Quoting from this article, it says the mainstream of biblical scholarship, notice it says the mainstream of biblical scholarship, could not conceive of the idea that there are very archaic traditions underlying the narratives of the book of Genesis. Indeed, perhaps a majority of modern specialists in the Bible, especially in Europe, cannot deal with Genesis except as a myth. A myth produced by Israel sometime after and probably long after the 10th century BC. The article goes on to say the heart of the problem is Genesis 14, because that chapter is so different from all the others concerning Abraham, critical scholars has tended to, have tended to write it off as unreliable, indeed unusable. More than 70 years ago, Herman Gunkel wrote that the narrative contains in blatant contrast, very credible and quite impossible material. And that would have been 70 years from 1979. Now notice the terms used by scholars of the world in reference to what is presented in the Bible as God-inspired truth. By the way, most of these scholars they're referring to are theologians, so-called. The scholars, the wise of this world, call the scriptures myth, unreliable, unusable, impossible. Now, either the Bible is truth or it is myth. Both views cannot be right. Either one is false and the other is true or the one is true and the other is false. There is an unbridgeable chasm between what the world considers wisdom or knowledge and what God's word says is true knowledge. Some from time to time have tried to reconcile the revealed knowledge of God's word and what we'll call for the purposes of this sermon, God's wisdom with the self-acquired knowledge of man, what we'll call the world's wisdom. We need to understand, first of all, that the two cannot be reconciled. 
and attempting to do so leads only to self-deception and spiritual blindness. The two are as different as, and irreconcilable as night and day, light and dark, truth and falsehood. As Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning with verse 14, what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? End quote. Notice what the Bible says about the impossibility of reconciliation between the world's wisdom and God's wisdom in 1 Corinthians 1, beginning with verse 18. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 18, for the message of the cross, message of the cross, that is the message of reconciliation of the world to God through the atonement sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which Paul refers to here as the cross. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? End quote. Is not, has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Now the word translated foolish here is from a, a root word, the Greek word moros, meaning stupid, heedless, blockheaded, absurd. That's how God views the wisdom of this world when standing in opposition to God's wisdom. 1 Corinthians 18 verse 21 tells us that the world by its wisdom, the world by its wisdom does not know God. 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 14 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 14 tells us that the things taught by the Spirit of God are foolishness to the natural man. So the wisdom of the world actually blinds most of mankind to the knowledge of God. And the things taught by the Spirit of God are foolishness to the natural man. So we see that there is an unbridgeable chasm between God's wisdom and the world's wisdom. To the scholars of this world, to the leaders in literature, the arts, those in commerce and industry, to the political and social leaders, to the journalists, to the religious leaders, to the man in the street, the teachings of God's word, the revealed knowledge of God, the wisdom of God is absurd. Thus they use terms such as myth, corrupt, unreliable, impossible of God's wisdom, of God's word. Even most of the relative few who ostensibly accept the Bible as God's word, when it comes to putting it into practice, regard it as impossible and foolishness. For example, to most, even who claim to hold the Bible in high regard, 
It is wisdom to keep Sunday, but it's foolish to try to keep the Sabbath. It's wisdom to keep Easter, Christmas, Halloween, Valentine's Day, but it's foolish to keep the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Tabernacles. To the world, virtually the entire world, not necessarily every living person, but to most people, God's wisdom is foolishness, impossible, absurd. But to God, man's wisdom, man's exalted learning, man's basic approach to life is utter folly, is blockaded, foolish, absurd. So we have a choice to make. We can cling to one or to the other, but we can't cling to both. We can use God's wisdom as our basic guide to life, a way which the world considers foolish and absurd, or we can follow the world's wisdom as our guide, which God says is foolish, destructive, and which will lead to death. Now you may be thinking, well, what does this have to do with me? I believe in God's word, but do we really believe in God's word as much as we might think we do? It's very easy to, without even realizing it, rely on the world's philosophies, its solutions, its ideas of what is right, its approaches to various issues, and to begin discounting what God says. For example, during the 1970s, even within the Church of God, there was a great deal of controversy about the proper role of women in the home and in society. Even in the Plain Truth magazine, there began to appear articles with statements to the effect that what the Bible says about the obligations of, of women was written for that society then, but now those ideas are outdated. In other words, God's wisdom is foolish. The world's wisdom about family life and women and men and children as well in family and society is to be preferred. So that's been 50 years or more since those controversies really came to the fore in uh, our nation and other parts of the world. Now in our society is a strong interest not only in having women in top positions in industry, business, government, and so forth, but giving preference to women over men in such roles. Masculinity, we're told, is toxic. Boys are being feminized. Various perversions and licentious sex practices are not only accepted, but are being promoted in our society by our government, by our schools, by powerful institutions. If men want to pretend that they are women or vice versa, that we're told is to be accepted and even encouraged as it is being in today's world. And it's only natural for us to respect the statements of learned scientists, historians or other scholars about evolution, history, even alleged errors in scripture and perhaps cause us to wonder about the truth of the Bible. It's easy for us to be influenced by the moods, the popular fads of the times concerning morality, 
lifestyles, attitudes, and begin to disregard God's word. The Bible tells us about this tendency in Colossians 2 and verse 8. Colossians 2 and verse 8. We're told, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy. The word philosophy is actually a Greek word, which means love of wisdom. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. According to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles or ways, it might be translated, of the world and not according to Christ. So we can be cheated through empty deceit, through following after the traditions of men and the ways of the world, rather than according to Christ and what God's word tells us. Paul warned Timothy to guard, and this is in 1 Timothy 6 and verse 20. Paul told Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. What is falsely called knowledge in the King James Version, the word here translated knowledge, which is a gnosis in the Greek, is translated science, and it can mean knowledge or science or both. So we're warned to avoid profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge or science. We need to keep in mind the Bible's warning, Jeremiah 10 and verse 23, Jeremiah 10 and verse 23, it is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. It's not in man who walks to direct his own steps. What this is telling us is that we need guidance from a higher power. We need guidance from God. Because if we try to figure out everything and do it according to our preferences without regard for what God tells us or could teach us, it will result in serious problems and eventually in death. To many a carnal mind, it may seem unbelievable that Abraham's small band could defeat four powerful kingdoms. To others, it's not credible that Jesus Christ could walk out of the grave alive. To others, it's absurd to think that a wife should seek fulfillment by submitting to her husband and giving loving attention to her children. Just as it may seem absurd that a husband should love his wife and be faithful to one mate for life. To the natural mind, it does not seem that God would want you to keep the Sabbath when everyone else is keeping Sunday. But God says in Proverbs 16 and verse 25, Proverbs 16 and verse 25, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Yes, what seems right to men that way ultimately leads to death. Notice it seems right though. It seems like the right way to go. It's all seems very logical to most people, but the end is the way of death. So what should we do? 
Should we hide our heads in the sand and be fearful of ever reading a book? In fact, actually, uh, a minister years ago asked me, why do you read all those books? He said, what if you find out the church is wrong about something? In other words, the idea is hide your head in the sound, don't ever read a book. You might find out that the church is wrong about something. Is that the approach we ought to take? Should we never read a newspaper? Should we remain ignorant and, un and unlearned, uh, unlearned? No, that's not the solution. The Bible teaches that we should seek knowledge and wisdom. We should seek knowledge and wisdom. Abraham was learned in mathematics and science, we're told. Moses was skilled in the knowledge of the Egyptians, as was Daniel in the knowledge of the Chaldeans. So we need to strive to learn, but as we seek to learn, we must follow certain basic principles. There are certain basic principles which will help us, help keep us on the right path. The first principle that I want to mention here in this regard is realize that God is the source of all true knowledge. God is the source of all true knowledge and we should ask God daily for wisdom. David, when he was about to die, King David of Israel, asked God to give his son Solomon, who was to become the king, wisdom to fulfill his obligations. In 1 Chronicles 22, beginning with verse 11, 1 Chronicles 22, verse 11, David said to Solomon, Now, my son, may the Lord be with you, and may you prosper and build the house of the Lord your God, as he has said to you. Only may the Lord give you wisdom and understanding and give you charge concerning Israel that you may keep the law of the Lord your God, then you will prosper. If you take care to fulfill the statutes and judgments with which the Lord charged Moses concerning Israel. Be strong and be of good courage and do not fear nor be dismayed. So David asked that God would give wisdom and understanding to Solomon. And Solomon, after he had become king, God appeared to him and said in Second Chronicles beginning uh, Second Chronicles 1, beginning with verse 7, God said to Solomon, Second Chronicles 1 and verse 7, Ask, what shall I give you? And Solomon said to God, You have shown great mercy to David my father and have made me king in his place. Now, O Lord God, let your promise to David my father be established, for you have made me king over a people like the dust of the earth in multitude. Now give me wisdom and knowledge that I may go out and come in before this people for who can judge this great people of yours. And God said to Solomon, because this was in your heart and you have not asked riches or wealth or honor or the life of your enemies, nor have you asked long life, but have asked wisdom and knowledge for yourself that you may judge my people over whom I have made you king. Wisdom and knowledge are granted to you, and I will give you riches and wealth and honor, such as none of the kings have 
had who were before you, nor shall any after you have the like. And so we go on to read in the scriptures, we're told that Solomon was blessed with wisdom and that he had wisdom exceeding any other of the kings of Israel. And he delved into many diverse subjects. He studied biology, he studied botany. He studied various scientific uh, subjects, you might say. And he grew in wisdom and knowledge. He conducted various kinds of experiments, which are some of which are recorded in the book of Ecclesiastes and gave advice on how to live life. He wrote the book, uh, most of the book of, of uh, Proverbs as well as Ecclesiastes. But he was a man of wisdom and God gave him that wisdom and he sought it out. Not only is God the author of spiritual knowledge as the example of Solomon teaches us, but God can and does give all kinds of gifts of physical knowledge and skills when it suits his purpose. When God told Moses to oversee the building of a tabernacle as a place of worship, God equipped the builders with the knowledge, the wisdom, and the skills necessary to do the job. And so we read in Exodus 31, beginning with verse 1, Exodus 31 and verse 1, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all manner of workmanship, to design artistic works, to work in gold, silver, bronze, in cutting jewels for setting and carving wood, and to work in all manner of workmanship. Now notice the kind of wisdom that God gave his gifts to this person. Skills in, in designing and developing works of art having to do with the constructing and decorating of a tabernacle. Goes on to say, I indeed I have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahissamach of the tribe of Dan, and I have put wisdom in the hearts of all who are gifted artisans. God put wisdom in the hearts of the artisans that they may make all I have commanded you, the tabernacle of meeting, the ark of testimony, and the mercy seat that is on it, and all the furniture of the tabernacle the table and its utensils, the pure gold lampstand with all its utensils, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, and the labor in its base, the garments of ministry, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of the sons of his sons to minister as priests, and the anointing oil and sweet incense for the holy place, according to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. Those to whom God had given wisdom. I might mention that in the 16th century, 
the Industrial Revolution began in Great Britain and or more perhaps the 17th and 18th centuries, but it actually began with what was called a revolution in science and intellectual pursuits, which completely changed society. That was the time of Isaac Newton, Michael Faraday, and others who discovered basic principles of physics and electricity and so forth. And machines that had never been, been before been conceived of began to be developed and built. And the way homes and buildings were constructed was vastly different from what had been throughout most of the Middle Ages, where, the, where often the buildings were simply made out of straw and grass and things of that sort, or limbs thatched together and so forth. All of that changed. What happened? What, why, why did all of that knowledge suddenly become available? And it, it seemed to explode out of nowhere. It was because God was giving that knowledge to people, especially in Great Britain, where it actually began, and enabled them to fulfill, enabled the British people to fulfill the prophecies for the end of this age. I'm convinced that the intellectual revolution, the scientific revolution, the industrial revolution were a consequence of God giving to human beings. And these weren't necessarily converted people. These were not people who were spiritually converted, but God gave them the wisdom necessary to do what he wanted to be done at that time in history. We as Christians should ask God to give us wisdom in how we go about earning our living. Not only in understanding the Bible, we need to ask for wisdom in that regard as well. We also need to ask for wisdom in earning our living, managing our finances, managing our, our family relationships, and other relationships. We need to ask God to give us wisdom in every aspect of our lives. We read in Psalms 119 and verse 133, Psalm 119, verse 133. Direct my, my steps by your word and let no iniquity have dominion over me. Direct my steps by your word. In James 1 and verse 5, James 1 and verse 5, it says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach and it will be given to him. Notice it says, if you want wisdom, ask God for it. And that's a prayer that God will answer affirmatively. In Ecclesiastes 2 and verse 26, Ecclesiastes 2 and verse 26, it says, for God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy to a man who is good in his sight. But to the sinner, he gives the work of gathering and collecting that he may give to him who is good before God. So the second principle I want to, you to keep in mind to help remain on the right path 
in terms of following God's wisdom and not the wisdom of the world is regard God's word as the foundational source of truth. Regard God's word as the foundational source of truth. God's word as the foundation of all knowledge. And understand that that which con contradicts God's word is false. The wisdom that comes from God is superior to any other so-called wisdom. Jesus said in a prayer to God, in John 17, verse 17, your word is truth. In Isaiah 8, verse 20, Isaiah 8, verse 20, it says, to the law and to the testimony, that is to the scriptures, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. It's because there's no light in them. Now, in our world today, science is often held up as the ultimate authority and the beacon of truth. You hear politicians often, especially recently, saying that they're following the science in doing whatever they're doing. For example, in telling people that they can't leave their homes and they can't plant seeds in their garden and, and can't get on boats and things like that. They're following the science, they tell us. But what is science? What is science? Science is often nothing more than the opinions of men. And often people who are reputed to be scientists disagree among themselves, profoundly disagree. And not infrequently, science or the guesses of scientists, guesses of scientists is wrong or are wrong. Actually, not infrequently, scientists lie. They lie either inadvertently or deliberately. So what do you mean when you say, I'm following the science? What does that really mean? Actually, it may mean absolutely nothing. A recent article in the Washington Times points this out. And I'm quoting from this article and I will quote extensively from it for a minute or two here. Quote, we can beat COVID-19, just trust the science we're told. Trust in the scientists we're told, and that's not a paraphrase. From the editors, we can beat COVID-19, just trust the science, Wired wrote. Wired is a, a publication on the website. So the article goes on to say, well and good, fine and dandy, but fact is scientists often lie. Science isn't always the beacon toward truth. It's not just frequently flawed, it's frequently deceptive and purposely so. Stanford researchers uncover patterns in how scientists lie about their data, wrote Stanford News back in late 2015. The story went on to report how a couple of researchers cracked the writing patterns of scientists to attempt to pass along falsified data, a finding that gave the science world a tool to identify falsified research before it's published. The discovery of the pattern is one thing, the fact that the pattern had to be discovered or pursued in the first place is entirely another thing. 
It says not so subtly that falsified scientific data is so prevalent that a tool to identify and slow the creep of the false data was actually an in-demand item. In fact, books have been written about the prevalence of falsified science. The Great Betrayal, Fraud in Science is a 2004 expose about the true state of science and science that's been peer reviewed that is self-checked and self-policed. This document, The Great Betrayal, Fraud in Science is 480 pages long. And in a tierce assessment of its findings, the author Horace Freeland Judson wrote, their claims about science are unscientific. He was speaking of the scientific greats of Gregor Mendel, of Charles Darwin, of Louis Pasteur, of Sigmund Freud. They all fudged data. What's more, it's well known they all fudged data. Freud was a lousy scientist, the New Yorker wrote in 2017. He fudged data, he made unsubstantiated claims, he took credit for other people's ideas, sometimes he lied. Mendel, the founder of modern genetics, may have falsified data. The Great Courses Daily reported in 2016. Moving on, Darwin. New book discovers the life and lies of Charles Darwin. Evolution News wrote in 2009. And of a special note, given the ongoing COVID-19 debate and vaccinations, this 1993 headline from the Independent, quote, Pasteur told lies about vaccines, specifically about the public trial of an anthrax vaccine and by using a child as a test case for a rabies vaccine that he had claimed to use on hundreds of dogs. The Washington Post, the New York Times, the Chicago Tribune, these are all papers of record that have reported over the years about Pasteur's record of scientific deceptions. These are hardly the only bad apples. Science Magazine in 2018 piece entitled Tide of Lies wrote bone researcher Yoshiriho Sato's fabricated data fraud that was called one of the biggest in scientific history. The American Council on Science and Health in a 2017 piece entitled Lying Politicians is one thing, Lying Scientists is another, wrote of the crappy science of researchers Peter Eklov and Ona Lundstedt, who reported in a 2016 paper that tiny particles of plastic in the ocean were harming fish and that microscopic plastic must therefore be harmful to fish. Findings that led them to be slapped with the peer-based misconduct and research label, findings that the pair subsequently retracted. QZ in a 2016 piece entitled, Nearly All of Our Medical Research is Wrong, wrote, something is rotten in the state of biomedical research. Everyone who works in the field knows this on some level. We applaud presentations by colleagues, but we know in our hearts that the majority or even the vast majority of our research claims are false. And so the, the author of this article goes on to say, wow, look, do the research, Google some headlines. There are more, so many more examples of scientists gone wrong, scientists gone rogue, scientists gone receptive. 
lies, skews, half-truths, selectively chosen data, biased conclusions, flawed interpretations, outright wildly inaccurate information. These are all part and parcel of scientists' lives. And why? Because scientists are human too. Scientists have deadlines, they have pressures, they have funding goals, they have peer competition, they have personal agendas, the political leanings, partisan purposes, spiritual blindnesses. In short, they are not perfect. Scientists are not perfect and the science they present is not perfect. Remember this, scientists can be wrong, very wrong. Remember, scientists can lie and very often as history shows, they do. And this is from an article by Cheryl Chumley entitled COVID-19 put spotlight on science, but science, but scientists often lie from the Washington Times, May 9th, 2020. Another example, which I've written about before and you may be familiar with is uh, the criticism of Darwinism by a couple of very prominent leading scientists Fred Hoyle and Chandra Wickramasinghe, they began to criticize publicly Darwinism in uh, probably the late 60s or early 70s. And they were roundly scorned by many others in the scientific community. And so in their book, Evolution from Space, they remark on why there is so much belief in Darwinism, despite the fact there is virtually no evidence that it has any basis in fact. And they say, scientists believe in Darwinism because there is a strong social tendency for everyone to become satisfied with a weak explanation. They want to believe in it. And so they become satisfied with a weak explanation. And yet, as the authors state, there are so many flaws in Darwinism that one can wonder why it swept so completely through the scientific world and why it is still endemic today. And one of the answers they give to this question is once the whole of humanity becomes committed to a particular set of concepts, educational continuity makes it exceedingly hard to change the pattern. You either believe the concepts or you will inevitably be branded as a heretic. Now notice what it does not say. It doesn't say the reason they believe it is because it is factually unassailable because the evidence overwhelmingly supports it. They say most scientists believe it because they don't want to be branded as heretics. They don't want to go against prevailing opinion. And these two authors go on to say, we've been disturbed to discover how little attention is generally paid to fact and how much to myths and prejudice. Little attention is paid to fact and a great deal to myths and prejudice when it comes to Darwinian theory. And remember, it's a theory, which means it's nothing but speculation. So the wisdom of this world, even the so-called scientific knowledge of this world is not always what it seems to be or what many people think that it is. 
it very often may not be wisdom at all, but dangerous deception and foolishness. The bottom line is the wisdom of the world. Now get this, this is important. The wisdom of the world ultimately produces evil, confusion, chaos, because it is rooted in the mind of Satan, the God of this world, and it is often rooted in impure motives. Let's contrast this with God's wisdom. In James 3 and verse 13, James 3 and verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, now do you think there's any envy and self-seeking in what you see going on in the world on a day-to-day -day basis? Where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So here is a fundamental difference between the world's wisdom and God's wisdom. The world's wisdom is earthly, sensual, demonic. It results in confusion and every evil thing. Ultimately, it will result in death. But wisdom from above is pure and produces good fruits. In Jeremiah 8, Jeremiah 8, verse 8, it says, how can you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? This is written to people who claim to be adherents to God's laws, at least on one level or another. And uh, Jeremiah, God asked through Jeremiah, how can you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? Look, the false pen of the scribe certainly works falsehood. This is talking mainly about religious leaders and, and these would have been uh, as well political leaders and leaders in other fields of endeavor. The false pen of the scribe certainly works falsehood. The wise men are ashamed. They're dismayed and taken. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. So what wisdom do they have? What wisdom do they have when they have rejected the source of true wisdom? God's word. The third principle I want to encourage you to observe, to avoid deception, to avoid, avoid being misled by the world's wisdom is demand proof. Don't just accept statements of anyone on important matters without doing due diligence to research and learn the truth. Just because it's on TV 
or in the newspaper or in a book or a politician, a scientist, a preacher, or someone on the internet says it does not mean it's true. So we need to be discerning. We shouldn't swallow just anything and everything we're told. First Thessalonians 5 verse 21, First Thessalonians 5 verse 21 says test, or it could be translated prove as this in the King James Version, test or prove all things, hold fast what is good. Prove all things, hold fast what is good. So we need to be very careful about what we believe, what we accept as true. In Acts 17, Acts 17, beginning with verse 10, it says that because of some trouble, Paul and Silas were sent away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These, it says, these Jews in Berea were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness. In other words, they didn't just reject the message out of hand, but they were receptive to it, but they didn't just believe it without proof. It says they searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. They searched the scriptures. They were looking to the scriptures for guidance. Now, of course, the scriptures don't give us details on every single aspect of knowledge. In fact, doesn't give us detailed information on most aspects of knowledge, but it does give us vital principles on how to approach learning and discern the difference between truth and falsehood. Eventually you have to trust someone. Eventually you do have to trust someone. There has to be a standard by which you judge and measure what you are told. Now we should check and compare different sources. And I'm not telling you to just be blissfully ignorant, but don't believe just anything you hear. Check and compare different sources, but ultimately put your trust in God and his word. And as I said before, ask God for guidance and wisdom. We see in Proverbs 30 and verse five, Proverbs 30 and verse five, every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in him. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in him. Following these principles can help you avoid being led into deception by the false wisdom of the world. And they can help you become firmly grounded in the true wisdom of God.